Patrick was our uh, preaching minister from August of 2011 through January 2014. He moved here from from uh, Rochester, Michigan, at the time. A, 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 a quiet, soft-spoken uh, introvert who got an office next to me with a door in between, and uh, <laughs> and he just heard loud pounding sounds all the time from my office. And uh, anyway, we we uh, just struck up a great friendship. I'm so grateful to have worked with Patrick, to have had him here. It's hard to believe how long you have been gone. That's true. And I am the minister still standing. Yes. I am I'm the lone one. I am the Kenan Thompson, uh, the Saturday Night Live's Kenan Thompson at East Side. I'm the guy they can't run off. <laughs> but we are so glad that you're here. He ran, he, uh, he, he almost said he ran off. He moved to Tennessee to be near, to, uh, at the beck and call of his grandchildren. And now is the uh, senior minister for the uh, Our Safe Harbor Church, which right. is based out of Franklin. Uh, Brentwood. Brentwood. Yes, okay. yeah. Okay. Close enough. I knew, close enough. Right. Close enough. Uh, Metro Nashville, based out of Metro. And we were so glad to have him here. I'm going to pray for him before we begin today. God, I'm so thankful for our friend Patrick, for what he has meant to us, what he's meant to this church and so many of us in our lives, for the way he made us rethink so many things. Uh, Lord, for uh, just the blessing that he and Cammie were to us and still are. And we were thankful for them. And we pray you bless them in their current ministry, bless them with a powerful uh, message this morning. It's just great to have old friends, Lord, and we're thankful for that and to renew those, those friendships today. Through Jesus we pray, amen. Thank you, brother. Yes, I can remember those days of trying to find a way to nail the door shut that connected our offices. Hello, church. So what did I miss? Anything? Anything at all? All right, it seems that I'd, I missed nothing. Let's just slide back into it then, shall we? Um, I've got about half hour here, a little bit more to go. So, let's talk about the Bible. That's one of those things, we, we talk about the Bible, but we don't really talk about the Bible sometimes. When I was a boy, I heard so many times from the pulpit, you know, the Bible is really a simple book. If an honest person just reads it honestly, they will come to all of the same conclusions that we have, which was handy. Because that way we didn't have to change groups. We'd already, I was born into the right one. You know, I felt sorry for the rest. But the fact is, that wasn't even close to true. The Bible can be a very confusing book. It can be infuriating. It can be terrifying. It can be choppy. It can be out of order. It can, and not as in bad, just not in chronological order. Uh, it, it, it is, um, it's a very difficult book. Now, there are some sections of it that are very, very fine. And it, it always kind of makes me smile, sadly, whenever I see people grab sections of them out as if God was sending them a personal blessing when he was actually talking to Judah in a particular context. But it's all right. It's fine. Right. It, apply it to you and enjoy your day. It was written over a 1,500-year period, edited repeatedly, and that's not knocking it at all, that the, the Jews are very open about that, and so is linguistics, if you look at it. They used a lot of different forms. There were prophecy, and there was uh, exhortation, and there was history, and there's poetry, and the like. They also did administrative work, like six chapters worth in the Chronicles of listing who belongs to who, and nobody cares. But it's there if you ever want it. Two main languages used, and then the books were edited and arranged into different orders by different groups, and it shows. 
It's tough. And we can't pretend otherwise. Or we can. But what happens then is that we, we never are allowed, allowing our own questions and issues to bubble to the surface. Because we feel that if we do, that is somehow being disloyal or unfaithful to God. Whenever I read the Bible, I want to find a principle that ties it together. I want to find something that makes work. Make, makes it work. For example, the Old Testament, go in there and kill them all, even the women and children. And here's Jesus, the Prince of Peace. I need to find a way to make these work. Many people tried different ways over the years. Of course, they've dismissed the Bible entirely. That's one option. It's always an option. But there are other people that decided that the God of the Old Testament just couldn't be the God of the New Testament. And so they split him into two gods. And Marcion was one of the early Christian leaders who did this. But there were many others. And many people still are, in effect, Marcionites in that they just won't deal with those difficult passages. And they just kind of, no, no, look over here. I need to find a principle. I need to find an arc. I'm a storyteller. Uh, I like stories. I think they're the second most powerful thing in the universe. And so as we sit about uh, with my, my grandsons and like, we tell stories. We, we talk about stories. I need to find the theme. In Galatians 5 and verse 6, Paul says, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. How many churches would fire their minister if that was his proclamation? And yet Paul said it. The only thing that matters. Now you know, uh, if Paul says the only thing that matters, you might want to hear the rest of that sentence. It's faith expressing itself in love. So what do we do? We fall about ourselves trying to define faith and love in such, and expressing itself in such a way that we're right back under the pile of bricks we started and so Jesus, remember Jesus? Jesus is the point. Jesus is what everything was leading up to. Look at Jesus, even the transfiguration. Do you remember that story? Here Jesus is on a mountain, he's praying, and he invites his three buddy, buddies with him. You can have best friends, you know, Peter, James, and John are up there. And all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses show up in the sky. And there's another miracle and that the Peter, James, and John knew who it was because no Jew was ever allowed to make a picture or representation of a living creature. So, you know, they'd never seen a picture of them, but they knew who they were. And they got very excited because all of their Marvel Comics universe had just arrived. And they, they thought they were elevating Jesus when they said, let us build uh, altars or technically a tent. It's a long story. Uh, to you, to, to, uh, to Moses and Elijah, put you right up there with the pantheons of the greats. And God broke into the conversation and made it very clear from heaven. He said, this is my son. You listen to him. You had the law and the prophets there. But God said, you listen to him. The Bible can often read, and it sure looks like, an argument about God. But Jesus settles the argument. And Jesus in Matthew 22 was asked by truth seekers of varying degrees of honesty, what is... What do we have to do? Because isn't that the question on all of our hearts? What do we have to do to measure up, to get in? And of course, you can just say obey the Bible, but you know, what part? How? It's confusing. 
And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two greatest commandments, says Matthew 22. He said, on them hang all the law and the prophets. I posted something on Facebook a couple of weeks ago. A little cartoon about Jesus saying, don't define Jesus by your concept of love. Define your concept of love. But Jesus and a preacher just decided to go off at me. If you, and one of the things, he thought he had a gotcha verse. There aren't gotcha verses. We know they're there. It's not a surprise trap. He said, the, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I said, you're exactly right. And what commandments were, were those? And what did he say they did? He never responded. Because the two commandments were love God, love your neighbor, and on that hangs all the law, all the prophets. You've, you've done what God wants you to do. Now that sounds great. Let's all admit, it sounds great that the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love and that love God and love your neighbor. Well, great. Although I would submit to you that loving your neighbor is a full-time job because some of you, to be honest, aren't that lovable and you're, not, you're making it harder than it needs to be uh, if, if we can just be blunt here because I, I don't work here and I'm leaving anyway. We're, we're just going to say that. I'll, I'll leave behind a mess for Matt to clean up. He's done it before. Uh, he can do this again. So when Jesus said the, only, the command that matters is love God and love your neighbor, did he mean it? What does greatest mean? And what about later when we hear that phrase, if you're guilty in one point of the law, you're guilty in all. Paul, by the way, when he said that, he was talking about people who believed we were saved. By precision obedience. Saved by a holy checklist. That if we did the checklist just right, it's rather like a magic trick. If you do all the motions just correct, you get the bunny. And if you do all the check marks just right, you get salvation. And he, Paul said, no, if you do it that way, if you're guilty in one point, you're guilty in all. He explained to them, as Moses had to explain to his people, that they had just created a golden calf. A lot of people aren't aware of this. When Moses was up on the mountain and he stayed too long and the people said, well, he must have died. Uh, Aaron built us a, you know, something to worship and he built this golden calf. They weren't worshiping a calf. Aaron, when he presented it, said, this is Yahweh who brought you out of slavery. They were, he was trying to make a representation of God. Now you and I, if we were trying to do a representation of God, would probably lean far more to the uh, Michelangelo you know, God in the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel than we would a cow. But if you are a nomad people in a desert land, a cow is life, health, food, sustenance, and a future. And so he was trying to make God visible, understandable, containable, checklistable. And God roared in anger. This is not a change in subject, but it will seem that way. When I drive along with people that are, come from a hunting background, the drive has a whole different flavor to it. I'm not opposed to hunting. I'm not opposed to that at all. It's just that's not a part of my culture. And so, uh, you know, go to Breton, the only people that get to hunt are, you know, the rich English guys. Uh, the Scots, we have to hold the deer. Uh, until they shoot them. That's it. That's, that's our part of it. That's how we lost Hamish. But I don't want to go into that. 
so I, hunting is just not a part. But I'll be driving along, and the, the lads in the car will look over, and, oh, see a deer over there? Oh, look over there. there, there there's some turkeys. You know, look over, and I, I never see. I look, and I look, and I never see. And because I wasn't trained to look for it. That's a phrase I want you to understand. I wasn't trained to see that. I wasn't trained to see the moral arc of the Bible. But once you see it, you can only unsee it by a force of stubborn will. The slavery rules. We don't like talking about those, but they're there. And then God says in the Bible, this is my covenant with you. But a few chapters later, there are more slavery rules. And they change. And you go to the next book and there are slavery rules and they've eased up some more. And we can keep doing this because if you follow the arc of time and the rules, they keep opening up, softening, until you get to Philemon when Paul says, the slave is your brother. Treat them as your brother. Do not mistreat them. They are family members now, not slaves. Well then, was God wrong then? Or wrong with Paul? No, he was right because we couldn't take it then. We weren't ready for it then, but God is pushing us toward love. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. I would agree with him. But I would add overwhelming that. And the reason for the justice is that the moral arc of the universe bends toward love. And that's who we are. But it's not just a slavery rule. What about Moabites? I always like to use those when people say, you know, God's never changed any of his laws. I'll say, um, you know about Moabites? In the Old Testament, Moabites were not allowed to come into the temple to the 10th generation. By the way, Hitler said you were only a Jew to the third generation. This is worse. So if you're great, 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 do the math, was a Moabite, you weren't allowed to be around God's people or worship. And that's just the rule. Really? Or is that what they thought the rule was? Because later on, we come across a very cute young lady named Ruth. Moabites. And she ends up being one of Jesus' grandmothers. It seems that Jesus has a different idea about who's, who can come to him. And that when he said, whosoever will, he meant it. What about this one? I have the blessing and the curse of living just a half hour south of Lipscomb University. It's a blessing because it's a great university full of great and amazing professors and administrative staff and they do in a great work. It's a, it's a bit of a curse in that they know then that they can have me come up and speak for free because I don't have to travel. I just drive up there and prepare to be shelled on the way home. So one of their big summer events which COVID killed, I think they'll probably try to bring it back. They, uh, they had me come to every year. When I saw the subject, it was the book of Joshua. And I told Cammy, I don't want to go. I don't want to play. I want to stay home. I was, I was, a, I was a fourth grader all over again. But I, I lucked out because nobody called me. Nobody called me. And I was going, yes, it's going to be great. And then two weeks before the huge event, Scott calls me from up there and going, oh, Patrick, I'm just so terribly sorry. I'm just so embarrassed. I go, what, what, buddy? And he goes, we need you to do a talk at, at our big event, summer celebration. And I went, okay. 
yay, thanks for asking. And he said, we want, I said, what do you want me to do? He gave me the story of Rahab. I said, I said, really? Re- really? He said, yeah, oh, and after you is John Mark Hicks. Perhaps the greatest living New Testament scholar. And uh, now he knows his Old Testament as well. And I'm going, okay, great, great. Right before I caught up, they introduced a new faculty member, Leonard Allen. And I turned to Cammie and I said, and next they're going to say, oh, and welcome our visitor, the Apostle Paul. I was not comfortable in this situation at all. So, but I got up. And I looked at him and I said, the story of Rahab. They sent some men into Jericho. And next scene, they're in a prostitute's house. And then they tell her, if you lie, God will bless you. And she does. And he did. Thank you for coming to our vacation Bible school. (laughs) The songs will seem a bit awkward, but sing along. It's, what do you do with it? You don't get a a decision tree. Like, how, how did the spies go from, let's spy out to the land to, here's a brothel on the city walls. But they're there. How did they have the authority to tell a woman to lie? And God backed it up. Especially when God told them that God wanted everybody in there to be wiped out. It seems a, a, a jumble of a story. And if you're trying to make it smooth, you're trying to defend God and he doesn't really need that. He needs you to hear him, not defend him. God's willing to work with us. And so, she's saved. But the next scene, next time we see her, she's outside the camp. That's the rule. You're allowed to, you know, you're, we don't kill you. We'll make sure you get food and the like. But you're not one of us. Until the next time we see her, when she's married to a guy named Solomona, a Jew. And you're not supposed to marry. It's against, they'll stone you to death, except they didn't. And then the next time we see Rahab's name, She's one of Jesus' grandmamas. Are you seeing? There's an arc here. If you start looking for it, it keeps showing up. Men standing around going, God wants this. And God's saying, well, let me ease you. Because we are sheep. You don't drive sheep. We're not cattle. So God's not going to thunder and say, here's it. Here's your checklist. Here's your precision obedience. You got it. No. He's going to lead you. We trust him. We move. But we're not done. What about this one? It was, in some ways, a death penalty. But you were certainly punished very, very, very harshly if you violated the sanctity of the temple. Part of that was nobody but the priest were allowed to eat from the showbread. And then David did. David did in 1 Samuel chapter 21. What are we going to do with that? Well, Mark chapter 2, Jesus said that was okay because he was hungry. Let that one just sit there for if, By the way, if you're not, if bombs aren't going off in your head or heart, either you've already figured this out or you're not paying attention because it looked like God had made a rule, but his rule is trumped by love in every single instance. Law is trumped by love. And that scares us to death. Because we like law. 
We just love law. It allows us to feel better about ourselves because we did law. And it, it makes us have the right to criticize others. They did not do law. Look at them speeding. They did not do law. I did law. I want, I want to, I'll wave at the trooper. Look, I'm doing law. We do that with God time and time again. But one of the most shocking ones comes in Luke 7. And so we're going to look at Luke 7 the next bit, all right? We all know the story of the adulterous woman in John 4, which was a later addition to John, but that's all right, because John said in his book that he wasn't writing down everything that Jesus had done. And early Christians found a way to insert that story. I love that story. You might want to notice at the end of the story, however, whenever Jesus looks at the woman caught in adultery, and he says, is there anyone here who condemns you? She looks around and she goes, no, they're gone. And he, please pay attention to the order. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We teach our kids and our churches as if Jesus had said, if you go and sin no more, I will hold nothing against you. Your past will all be clean. He didn't. He looked at a woman that was in a tragic situation perhaps of her own making. I, I tend to give the women the order, um, benefit of the doubt, as did Jesus. So I'm going to say, no, it wasn't. But regardless, and he didn't say, get your life right and you, know, you repent or perish. He said, I don't hold anything against you either. And I can't help but think of David in table of showbread or spies frightened and looking for a shelter and a find a way out. And I keep hearing God saying, love trumps law. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. That loving God and loving your neighbor, that's all God's looking for. It It hangs all the law and the prophets. That's what God was doing. And every time I get confused, I hear the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son. You listen to him. Well, in Luke 7, Jesus proves once again, didn't really need to, he does anyway, that he was, he's better than I'll ever be. Because as Matlet, you know, I'm, I'm a, a man that doesn't talk unless I'm working. And I, I like solitude and quiet. Our church, just very briefly, is, is mainly online. We have a soundstage where you can attend. But we have thousands of people every week listening and, and engaging from 32 nations at present every week. And it's, uh, well, they're not every week engaging from 32 nations. But they're watching and they're being a part of it. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. But that's, that's almost ideal for me because then I can um, hit a button and my church goes away. And, and I can go. And I, there's no shaking hands at the door. There's none of it. There's none of it. Well, there's, there's no, not an ebullient, effusive worship minister next door. I've heard these things can happen. Anyway, Jesus is invited to a party and he goes. Now, that's not the most shocking thing because Jesus is seen going to parties. But this was a party that was hosted by a Pharisee. And there ain't no party like a Pharisee party. Who would want to go to a Pharisee party? You ever going to judge a lot? Spend the wheel of judging? Jesus goes. Now they eat outside because you did. Homes weren't for eating. You didn't have room for that. There's a shelter and sleeping. Outside is where your kitchen was. And so you're set up to eat. The man has brought his friends in. They're all around the table eating. And the poor people began to arrive because the Jews had a very good system. 
that, uh, and as far as I can tell, this guy that invited him, the Pharisee, was a really nice guy. And so he would have followed the law and had extra food made. And so after you're done eating, then the guests step away from the table. The poor people that have been lining the perimeter are allowed to come in and eat anything they want, take it home, whatever. We see that in Ruth and Boaz as well. Well, they're eating and there's a lady on the wall. And the walls would have been low, just basically to mark your area. Standing and she broke the rules. Because she was broken. And she came and she fell at Jesus' feet in a Pharisee's party. And she was a sinful woman, a woman who was a sex worker. There's no other way to put it than that. And she was crying and touching his feet. All right, we don't get this. We just don't. Touching a man you're not related to will still get you killed in many nations in the Middle East. It is still a horrendous violation of all their laws. Way pre-Islam. It's just ingrained. And to touch his feet, we don't get this either, but feet were considered an erogenous area. And therefore, you certainly don't touch that. And she's drying off the tears with her hair. Well, you already know how you got to cover the hair thing. Everything's going wrong. The Pharisee knows his party has just veered sideways into a dumpster fire that fell in front of a runaway train. And he's trying not to say anything. And Jesus, being an amazingly good-humored individual, lets it ride. Just lets it keep on going. And eventually, he turns to his host and he says, "Uh, Simon, would you happen to notice the woman that's all over me right now? And Simon's going, oh, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, Jesus is hilarious. That's all this guy's been thinking about for a long time. And his Pharisee friends are just doing the red thermometer thing. And they're sweating it out as well. Because they got to go home and they live in this community. And now everybody knows and it's just. And he goes, let me tell you a story. <laughs> if somebody owns, owed somebody a lot of money. And then another guy owed the same guy just a little bit of money. And the guy forgave both debts. Who do you think would appreciate it more? And Simon, I love the phrasing. He goes, well, I guess, you, you guess, do you, you know. You just think everything is a trick question because that's the way your religion's set up. You think everything is a trick question. I guess the guy that got the bigger debt. He goes, yeah. You see this woman? She's never stopped kissing me and crying, caring for me. Not since I got in. And he turns to her and he tells her her sins are forgiven and to go in peace. But he doesn't say something else. You need to understand something about stories. It's not just about what's there. It's about what's not there. Arthur Conan Doyle in his portrayal of Sherlock Holmes was an expert in understanding this. And so one case is solved because a dog didn't bark. And I'm not going to say spoiler alert. It's too late. You, you had a chance. 
There, if, you, if you see Japanese paintings, you will see there's more white space than there is anything else. Why? Because what is not there interprets what is there. In every other case that we can look at, Jesus tells people to make a change. But he didn't to this woman. He didn't tell her to change her life. Jesus lived in a society where if the man died, the woman had no rights or property. She had to go back and live in her father's house. Well, what if the father's dead? Well, then she has to let the, the, her older son run affairs. Well, what if she doesn't have a son or he's not old enough? Then she's on the street. If she has enough money, maybe like Lydia, she can make a business. But if she does not, she can be like the widow to Elisha saying, I'm just going to make one last meal for me and my son and then we will lay down and die. Or they can go into sex work to stay alive and feed their babies because they're, and, by, and if you're thinking right now, well, I would never do that. You're a harder person than I am to think that you could handle the tears and cries of your children as they starve to death. Or she could have been a slave that was pimped out by her owner and she had no power over her life. Whatever reason it was, whatever was wrong in her life, Jesus did not ask this woman to change anything. He just forgave her. Do you see it? Once you see it, you don't unsee it. Love trumping law and God reaching out through Jesus. We've got about, what do we do? You need me off the stage here in what? Another two or three? Is that right? I think so. Okay, real quick. Next, we're coming up to Christmas fairly soon. Please understand that Mary never had a good day in her life. Never. Her own children did not believe her story of how she got pregnant with Jesus. Joseph disappears by the time Jesus is uh, over 12 years old. He might have died. He, as a Sadiq, he could have, the law would have let him say, you know, I decided I don't believe Mary's story. And he can walk off and start another family. We don't know what happened to Joseph. But we do know that Mary, all, every day of her life, would have been known as a fallen woman by her neighbors because even her children didn't believe this. And how many times did people come up to Jesus, once at least, with Mary standing right there and saying, we know who our father is. Mary would have had lines on her face, calluses on her hands. Her fingers would have been bent from toil and work. And whenever... They come after Jesus, the family comes after Jesus. They don't say, Joseph's son is in here. They say, Mary's son and brothers and sisters have come. They never mention Joseph because the people didn't believe the story. And then she has to watch her son die. Is it any wonder then that Jesus spent his life finding women rejected by medical Science rejected by uh, society, rejected because of their sinfulness, and one after another sought them out. The Samaritan woman was the first one he ever told who he was. He told her, I'm the son of God. He said, that's me. He's the first one he ever told. He sought them out and said, you're loved, you're forgiven. This is why they call it good news. Look for it. Train yourself. And that way you'll see what you never saw before. It's good to see you. God bless. Cheers.
Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.